The appeal of a good mystery story is more often than not seeing how the clues fit together and solving the puzzle. But unfortunately, real life isn't like that. Figures from 2016 show that the national clearance rate for murder in America is around 60%, meaning that 40% of victims and their families continue to go without justice. In this episode of Cold Case Detective, we'll be taking a look at three puzzling cases that continue to go unsolved. Larry Groves. At around 11 p.m. on January 12, 2003, 40-year-old Larry Groves, who lived alone but for his two dogs, was on the phone with his friend, Sandy Smith, from Mississippi. The pair were only 10 minutes into their nightly catch-up when someone on the other side of Larry's door began banging on it. A man was heard angrily shouting to be let in. Concerned, Smith asked Larry who it was. Larry said he would handle it and call her back in 20 minutes, but Larry never called back and he was never heard from again. On January the 28th, Larry's mother Wanda filed a missing report on her son. She found out that nobody had heard from Larry in weeks and that he had also not been attending to his successful antique business. Upon entering his house, authorities found no trace of the 40-year-old or his two dogs. The house was immaculate, with nothing taken nor out of place. This was confirmed by his mother, who went on to search the house for clues on Memorial Day weekend in May, and by his sister, Pam Spence, who also looked for details police might have overlooked in her brother's house that April. Then, on June 18th, roughly five months after Larry was last heard from, his neighbor, a man named Dick Shaliol, noticed that the peach tree in Larry's garden was starting to come far over the fence which separated their properties. The ripened fruit that fell to the ground was attracting bees that started to attack Shaliol's dog every time he let it outside. Mildly annoyed by this, he began cutting back the branches which hung over the fence. It was at this point that Shaliol noticed something disturbing. Great big bull flies covered the inside of a window in Larry's house. The exterior siding looked as though it had been painted black. He realized now that the crows that frequently gathered on the fence had been feasting on these bugs. Uncomfortable with what he was seeing, Shaliol immediately called Durl Bennett, the owner of the property. Durl was the father of Larry's partner, Tom, who had passed away from a heart attack in 2001. The two had been living together in the home since Larry was 17, after Durl had given the property to his son. Once Tom had passed away, however, ownership reverted back to Durl, who told Larry that he could continue to live in the bungalow for as long as he wanted. Inside, Shaliol and Bennett were hit with a foul odor. They thought it must have been the rotting meat in the fridge, but it wasn't. Durl and Bennett realized it was perhaps coming from the crawl space. Together, the men moved Larry's desk and pulled back the rug, revealing the trap door to the crawl space where they found the badly decomposed body 
of Larry Groves. His body had disintegrated so badly in the summer heat that a cause of death could not be determined. Larry's family, Wanda Groves and Pam Spence, were sickened by the news, realizing they had both been right next to Larry when they'd been searching the home for clues. After speaking further with friends and family, Indiana State Police managed to discover the name of their first and only suspect in the case, the man who had turned up at the door on January 12th, 2003. On June 18th that same year, on the same day the body was found, police took this man in for questioning. Detective Don Curl, who worked on the case, described the suspect, who has never been publicly named, as being cold and calculated, never losing composure or rising to the bait. The interview ended with the suspect staying silent until his lawyer arrived, after telling police that he had already revealed everything he knew. An article from 2007 stated that police hadn't spoken with the man since this initial interview. In November of 2006, the FBI crime lab in Phoenix established that the hair and blood samples taken from Larry's body and crawl space did not conclusively match the man suspected of the murder, although one year later, Don Curl said there might be more evidence to test. In the months after Larry's initial disappearance, his other next door neighbor, Fred Holdman, claimed to have seen trucks coming and going at the home. However, he didn't think anything of it since Larry himself often drove a truck and loaded it up with antiques, so it was a common scene on the street. Law enforcement discovered from this information that the suspect they later questioned used the 40-year-old's truck to load up antiques and sell them to Michigan-based dealers. In the years following Larry's death, police seemed no closer to arresting his killer. To friends and family, it seemed obvious who was responsible, yet justice was out of reach. Larry was described by those who knew him as, quote, someone you either liked or you didn't, due to his frank nature and no-nonsense approach, but also as someone who was dependable and who would do anything for anyone. His partner, Tom Bennett, was about 10 years his senior and had taught Larry everything he knew about antiques. According to his friend, Sandy Smith, the couple had trouble being accepted in their town of Lakeville, Indiana. Larry was more effeminate and less confrontational than his partner, and so he took the brunt of the harassment. These statements from Sandy have made some online sleuths consider if Larry was the target of a hate crime. It has also been noted whoever killed Larry had to have known there was a crawl space beneath the house, something which even his mother and sister didn't seem to know existed. This line of speculation has led to some questioning the geniusness of Durl Bennett's character. It was clear he knew the trapdoor was there, so why did he not say anything sooner? Another theory that has been discussed online is the idea that the suspect had perhaps brought some muscle with him another person to do the dirty work. It's possible this person ambushed Larry when he opened the door, and maybe this would explain why the DNA found on the body did not match the police's primary suspect. Many have also questioned what happened to the dogs Larry owned, as they were never located. Dean Rauch, a reporter at the Lunar Echo newspaper in Lakeville, heavily criticized the local community for not caring about Larry's case or finding his killer blaming this on homophobia. He said, quote, 
There is no real public outrage. If this was an elderly woman or somebody's grandmother, somebody would be screaming about this murder. If it was an 11-year-old girl, there would be yellow ribbons all over still. But generally, no one cares. I think that's sad. To this day, almost 20 years after the murder, the case of Larry Groves is still unsolved. Leah Hickman Leah Hickman was a 21-year-old broadcast journalist student attending Marshall University in Huntington, West Virginia. She had big ambitions to be a TV news reporter, and at the time of her disappearance, she was living with her half-sister, 25-year-old Jessica Vickers, in an apartment on 8th Avenue. Leah had attended Ohio Valley Christian School before graduating Christ Academy in Point Pleasant. She was fondly thought of by those who knew her, and she enjoyed TV shows such as Friends and Arrested Development, as well as spending time with her loved ones. Leah was last seen on December 14th, 2007 by her half-sister. That evening, Leah signed into her MySpace page, then called a friend to say she was going to McDonald's. The receipt for this was later found in her home. Jessica Vickers last spoke to Leah that night, when the 21-year-old had been washing dishes and told Jessica about her new university schedule and the grades she'd received for the semester. It seemed that Leah was extremely happy with her life and with how school was going. The next day, on December 15th, Jessica came home to find that Leah's keys, purse, and car were there, but the student herself wasn't. Her employer of five months, Dress Barn, reported that she had not turned up for work that day, something which was highly unlike her. With nobody able to reach her, the family began to worry. Ron Hickman, Leah's father, was hit especially hard by the disappearance of his daughter. Ron resided an hour away in Point Pleasant, but drove through with his sister and a preacher to search Leah's home. Leah was Ron's only child, and the pair were extremely close. On Monday, December 16th, 2007, a missing persons report was filed with the Huntington Police Department. Law enforcement and search parties canvassed the area while Dressbarn put up a $10,000 reward for any information that led to Leah's whereabouts. A week later on December 21st, just days before Christmas, Leah's body was found stuffed in the crawl space under her apartment building her body wrapped in plastic. It was determined that she had been murdered, having died from strangulation. The apartment complex's crawl space could be accessed through the communal laundry room and via each of the four units in the building. Two of the units in the apartment were unoccupied, with Leah and her sister residing in the third. The fourth unit was occupied by a man who had a solid alibi confirming that he was out of town when Leah was killed. Early on, police had a suspect in the case, someone who was not publicly named. They stated they were trying to gather evidence so they could build a case against this unidentified person, believing this was not a random act of violence, but was carried out by someone familiar with the apartment block and Leah herself. Tips about Leah's murder flooded into the Huntington Police Department. Friends and family hung flyers around the city, appealing for information. The weekend before Christmas, Dress Barn closed its doors, hanging a sign that said they had closed out of respect for their former employee. 
They also covered the costs of Leah's funeral. Trace evidence found at the scene was sent to Phoenix, Arizona for DNA testing in 2008, and in 2009, the results came back, but they yielded no answers. Around this time, police said they still had some evidence and planned to use it when technology advanced further, hoping that one day, it would lead to answers for Leah's family. Over the years, many members of the police department have assured the public and the family of Leah that her case is not cold and has not been closed, but it seems clear that progress has slowed considerably. Many online sleuths have criticized the investigation and expressed dissatisfaction with the police work showcased by Huntington PD. There is much speculation, both online and among the local community, that Jessica's ex-boyfriend was responsible for the murder, as he blamed Leah for the fact that Jessica had broken up with him. Allegedly, he and Leah had never got on. There are also many rumors floating around about Jessica helping this man to cover up the crime and that the plastic wrapped around Leah was from either Jessica's work or the ex-boyfriend's work. None of these postulations has any evidence to back them, however, and appear to be simple speculation. For the years after her murder, Leah's father continued to meet up with Lieutenant John Williams once a month for updates on the case. Even though Williams has now retired, he and Ron continue to keep in touch. In an article from 2019, Ron Hickman told of how his daughter left impressions on people. He said that even in recent years, he still has people approaching him to tell him how helpful Leah had been when she was alive. In one interview with NBC News, he said, quote, she left such an impression on people in such a short amount of time. Imagine if she had gotten to live her whole life. But despite an ongoing police investigation, the murder of Leah Hickman remains unsolved. The Whitehall Mystery One of the most striking and unusual cases of the 19th century, the Whitehall Mystery begins on September 11th, 1888, when a right arm and shoulder are found on the muddy shore of the River Thames. It was initially suspected that the arm had been placed in the water by a medical student as a prank, but in the following months, it became clear that something much more sinister was occurring in London. Dubbed the Whitehall Mystery, the case of pieces of a dismembered woman's body showing up around the city shook the British public in the late 1800s. It is now connected with the Thames Torso Murders, and, like those, remains unsolved. On October 2nd, less than a month after the arm was found on the banks of the River Thames, another body part was found. Men working on the construction of Scotland Yard found a parcel that contained human remains. The woman's torso had been found in a three-month-old vault that made up part of the cellar. It had been carefully wrapped in cloth, possibly a black petticoat, and neatly tied with string. Despite the effort put into packaging up the torso, it was clear that whoever had dismembered the body was not skilled in doing so. The body appeared healthy and well-nourished, and was matched by a police surgeon to the arm found the previous month. It was believed that the torso had been placed there after September 29th, as that was the most recent day that workers had been there in the cellar. The discovery of the arm, followed so closely by the finding of the torso, led to the brewing of panic among the locals, and fears that the killer 
would never be caught. Two weeks later, on October 17th, a reporter, utilizing a trained dog and acquiring the help of a laborer, found a left leg which had been cut above the knee and buried near the construction site. The remaining limbs and the victim's head have never been located, even though it's been over a century since her remains were first discovered. She has also never been identified in the years since. In the aftermath of these grisly discoveries, police ruled out any connection between the dismembered Jane Doe and the serial killer, Jack the Ripper. Westminster's coroner initiated the inquest into Jane Doe's case. She was found to be, quote, of large stature and well-nourished, and approximately 24 years of age. It was noted that her uterus had been removed and that her right arm had been removed by someone with anatomical knowledge post-mortem. The victim had been wearing a branch satin dress at the time of her death. This specific piece of clothing had been manufactured in Bradford and the pattern was three years old. Some newspaper pieces found within the torso came from the Echo, dated August 24th, and from the Chronicle, although the date of this particular paper is unknown. Jane Doe's cause of death could not be established, although she is believed to have not suffocated or drowned. She is estimated to have been dead for around six weeks to two months. She appeared to have been a relatively healthy individual, and there was no indication that she had given birth in her short lifetime. Jane Doe is described as a fair-skinned individual with dark hair, and as someone who is not used to manual labor. There have been a few possible identities for Jane, though none that we can state with any degree of certainty. She was initially thought to have been a young, married woman who left her Lewisham home on August 20th, 1888. The unnamed woman was 23 years old and tall, and had threatened to take her own life. It is believed that this woman did commit suicide and is likely not Jane Doe. Another possibility is that Jane was a woman named Emma Potter. In September of 1888, her mother had come forward fearing the body was that of Emma, who was 17 years old and of, quote, weak intellect. The young woman had one day left her home and simply never returned. The police surgeon confirmed that the particulars the mother gave of the girl matched those of Jane Doe's arm, but this lead has ultimately never been proven or disproven. In one of the more grisly cold cases of the 1800s, both Jane Doe and her killer remain unidentified. And there you have the facts. Please leave a comment down below with your own theories and speculations, and remember to like this video and subscribe to support the channel. If you want to hear more detail on true crimes throughout history, please check out the Cold Case Detective podcast linked below. Thank you for watching. Stay alert, stay safe, and I'll see you next time.